0: Hello and welcome to the Data Journalism podcast. My name is Simon
1: Rogers. I'm a data journalist, speaker and teacher, a data editor at Google. And my name is Alberto Cairo. I am a professor of visualization at the University of Miami, an infographics designer and journalist and a book author. We love using data to tell
0: stories and the music you can hear is sound of data, made with two-tone, an app that turns data into tunes. It's also the sound of inflation the US
1: economy transformed into musical notes. And this is the Data Journalism podcast, the only podcast, as far as we know, and at least so far, that dissects the latest trends in data journalism around the world. In each episode, we will explore the latest in data journalism, and we will chat with some of the world's top data journalists. You'll get to find out how they do what they do. So
0: subscribe to see how data is changing the world of journalism forever. Forever.
1: That's a very forever. long time. That's a long time.
0: Isn't it? <laughs> so, so, talking of forever. So uh, this week we actually have uh, two guests who it feels like we've worked with them forever. Oh yeah, it? forever.
1: It's been a long time, and it's a very <laughs> it, it, it was it a very, very exciting day. episode. Yeah, yeah, very exciting episode.
0: Yeah, it was. This is um, with Matt Daniels and Caitlin Ralph from um, the Pudding and Polygraph. Uh, which is increasingly being seen as one of the most innovative and exciting kind of data visualization studios out there. And um, we chatted to them about what it's like to set up a
1: data journalism operation and the kind of the collective way that the pudding works. Uh, not only that, but I think that also what came through during the conversation is uh, how nice they are. Mm. Uh, and I think that uh, that's something that we both experience working with them. I mean, it's not only that it's not only that they are uh, an extremely talented uh, group; uh, they are polygraph and they're putting, but also they are a delight to work with.
0: Yeah, and that goes a long way. I mean, one of the kind of the undercurrents of this episode, I think, is how to work with designers. A lot of journalists don't really know how to work with designers. I think that that visual work can suffer either from either being too controlling or not not um involved enough and i think one of the lessons we've learned is really the joy of working with people who are smart and, and know how to kind of uh, how to interact with you but
1: also you know are open to ideas but know what they're doing not only that i think but I don't, uh, another theme that sort of like i think permeated the permeates the episode is the fact that and this is something that maybe news organizations could do a little bit more often to give their designers and their data journalists a little bit more freedom to pursue whatever it is that they, that interests mm. them, which is something that the Putin does though, all the time, right? They decide they are interested in measuring, you know, hand pockets. <laughs> to compare women's pockets to men's pockets, right? And they actually did a project about that, which was amazing, right? Uh, I think that that also pertains the episode, the, the value of freedom. Obviously we need to cover yeah. as journalists, whatever it is that is important, the news of the day, but also give, giving designers and journalists the opportunity to do some side projects maybe, or even transforming those side projects into their main projects sometimes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, should we get started?
1: Let's get started.
2: My name is Matt Daniels. Um, I'm currently a journalist and engineer at The uh, Pudding, as well as our sister studio, Polygraph. i have been here from the start, kind of standing up the company and the publication. And I'm really excited to be here.
3: Hi, I'm Caitlin Ralph. Um, I'm currently living in New York City, but I just spent a year in Scotland, which was very fun. <laughs> um, I am the director at Polygraph, but I also started as a journalist engineer on the team making work at The Pudding and Polygraph. Um, and yeah, I, I, you know how much I love Simon Alberto, so I'm really excited to be here. I appreciate you guys asking. Me on the
0: podcast. Well, it's great <laughs> to see you guys. Thanks for joining. And I think I uh, we should both, Alberto and I, declare a conflict of interest immediately in that we work a lot with you guys. Um, we have done for a few years now. In fact, you're probably our longest um, standing kind of uh, design relationship. But I would love you to start off really by talking through what is the difference between the pudding and polygraph. And, um, and then we can talk a little bit more about the pudding, but yeah.
3: I can jump in and grab this one. Um, it's a conversation I have with clients every single day um, because it's not immediately apparent. So if you go on the Pudding's website, which is pudding.cool, and if you go on Polygraph's website, website polygraph.cool, Um, They look like totally separate companies. The branding is different. The logos are different. um, And that's purposeful. It's not until you go into the about page and you kind of read between the lines that you find out that the two companies are actually connected and it's the same team working at both. The reason we did that is that The Pudding is our editorial publication. It's where we publish our pieces of journalism. It's completely author-driven. It is not influenced by any client or no one's paying for it or anything like that. It really is just an author being interested in a question, a topic, um, and wanting to make a visual essay. And if you know The Pudding, you know that the term visual essay is very loose. We publish Anything from interactive experiences to quizzes to you know straightforward pieces of editorial that include graphics. Um, but they're all based in something an author is just interested in. Um, however, you'll also notice on the pudding that there's no page, there's no ads, there's no um, subscriptions. Um, it's completely free and open. We actually don't even look at our analytics. We don't track page clicks. Um, But we are for-profit. We're not a nonprofit. We're not funded by a grant or anything like that. And that's where Polygraph comes in. Um, Polygraph is our, um, it's our studio. It's our agency. We call ourselves the best in visual storytelling for hire. Um, So it's the same work and the same things that we bring to the pudding. Um, Instead, we're just partnering with different brands, companies, organizations, nonprofits, um, people who just want essentially white-labeled work done for, um, where they work and where they are. Um, yeah. So like someone said, we've been working with you all for like six years now as an example and have published a lot of cool work. So um yeah, that's the difference between the two.
1: Why don't we talk a little bit about the history of both operations? What so what came what came first, polygraph or the pudding or the pudding or polygraph? And how did both happen?
2: Yeah, I can take this one um just from a historical perspective. Uh so Polygraph definitely came first in the sense that um, it was just me and uh, some of the early data projects, data storytelling projects, I was going to just put on my own site, like a mattdaniels.com type of deal. And I wanted it to feel more official and like legitimate. So uh, I just made up a company name and bought .cool since .com was uh, clearly more expensive and put it there. Um, and after a while, uh, a few articles started to build up there. Um, one of the first collaborations w- was with another, um, data journalist, data visualization person, Shirley Wu, who has worked with you all as well. Um, so there started to be multiple authors on the site and, uh, then the, the, the model of doing work for hire was always there. And it's something that almost every newsroom has like the New York times and the Atlantic, they all have kind of a, a white labeled, uh, storytelling studio within the newsroom um so that was still always a business model and it made sense at a certain point to just call them different things um you know even though i and a few other contributors were publishing work uh it wasn't as big as like the atlantic obviously so it was a little bit conflated whether the entity was a uh like a for hire agency or whether it was a publication so At a certain point, it made sense to just call them different things, Um, so we debated names for a really long time. Um, The pudding was probably one of the worst ideas, and then we finally came around to it. Uh, I think we were debating, like, calling it the proof, and then one of my friends was joking, like, oh, you should call it the pudding, because the proof is in the pudding. And I was like, that's a terrible idea, and (laughs) we just went with that. It was clearly easy to copyright, which was nice, or trademark, rather. Um, So it's been the pudding doing the... Uh, journalism slash visual storytelling on the internet as a publication since 2017. Then Polygraph has kind of lived on as a data visualization studio, data storytelling studio, um, ever since. And um, what's your
0: background? How did you get into this in the first place?
2: Uh, Wow, what a great story. So um, (laughs) my background is not in this at all. Um, In fact, I have taught myself how to do all of these things. in all the trials and tribulations that come with learning both the skill set and kind of the 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 profession as well like what what it takes beyond just technically producing work um so it started i think in 2015 just publishing projects on my own on the internet um i'd taken a sabbatical from my last place of work which was a digital strategy firm and just started doing data music Projects uh, during that sabbatical. Um, in fact, one of those projects was with Converse on the um, like on punk music, which was specifically looking at Spotify data uh, and looking at what what playlists were called punk playlists and what artists appeared on those. And I think that caught Caitlin's eye and, and convinced her to reach out. She was working at like a punk publication at the time. And anyway, so I was doing those projects kind of on my own as like a side fun for funsies thing uh, on top of this digital strategy firm and those projects that I were doing were really fun. Um, I really enjoyed them. Like that punk project was just a lot of fun to work on. And uh, at a certain point, other organizations besides Converse were approaching me and saying, hey, we really would like to do this. Here's some money to like invest in doing this project and kind of underwrite the work and uh, that. Eventually became reliable enough to kind of quit the consulting job and move into doing this full time. So uh, that that was kind of the 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 confidence to go out and do this on my own rather than just a a hobby. Um, but ever since then, the hobby has turned into something more serious. And we've done more serious work and worked with people who've worked in newsrooms their entire lives. So uh the 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 fun work also started to turn into something that was more of a professional effort as well.
1: What about you, Caitlin? What is your background in? And now that I'm asking what what's everybody else's background uh, in at Polygraph and the cooking? Why don't we talk a little bit about the team as well?
3: Yeah, I'll I'll start with the team and then I can talk about myself a little bit. So the team is just as varied. We have everyone from, you know, Kevin has a um, philosophy degree, Ilya studied um, psychology for his undergrad and master's, but now he's getting his master's in computer science. Russell has a technical computer science background, but he also did a lot of like interactive media for his master's at Emerson. Um, Jan worked as a designer in newsrooms for 10 years, but she was strictly a designer. She didn't code or anything like that. Um, and, you know, then we just have Michelle who joined, who, you know, has a background um, in computer science, strictly as well, and then Rob used to work at TED, um, so he doesn't even have he doesn't have a background in journalism or data or anything like that. But he's just fantastic at leading teams and organizing things. So um, my background is is quite varied. Um, so I I was focusing on lots of things in school. Um, basically, it surrounds music, academic research, and journalism. Um, I started working on my paper in like middle school. Um, Just because I loved music so much, I was obsessed with my favorite bands and I was like, I need to work in the music industry. This is like me in like seventh grade, but I knew I could not play an instrument. So I was like, I'm good at writing. Um, So I started writing for my school paper, continued doing that in high school, continued doing that in college. But in high school, and this is like everyone's like fun fact, favorite fun fact about me for my background In high school, I did competitive science fair for four years. So I did like the Intel ISEF. I was doing a four-year study um, in cognitive psychology based on technology in the classroom. So this is like going back like 10 years when it was still a relatively new concept, like giving a kindergartner web app to read and things like that. So I did that for four years. I competed internationally two years in a row, but I was continuing to write and work on journalism at the same time. And that continued through college. Um, I actually... Finally, I was on a track to be a computational neuroscientist. I was doing internships for two summers in um, strictly neuroscience, um, studying things like MRI and dementia dementia and stuff like that. Still, though, I had a blog. I was writing album reviews and concert reviews. And then there was two really important things I found. One was Matt's punk article that he talked about. So I'm really happy he mentioned that one. And then Simon, your article, Data Journalism is the New Punk. Um, so I read both of those things. Um, changed my major to computer science. I worked at that punk magazine that Matt was talking about, but I cold emailed Matt and I was like, let me help you. Um, Four or five years later, I can't believe I'm still bothering him to this day, but that's how, that's basically how I entered into this field. And I ended up doing my master's in data visualization at Parsons School of Design in New York City um, after I graduated. So yeah, it's a bit, a bit about my background.
0: So one of the things that um, I noticed when you go to the pudding for pages, you know, it changes a lot. I feel like there's a lot of, a lot of output. But it feels to me that like there are some interesting themes that kind of run through. Like if you go to the site right now, there's a fascinating piece about like the oldest image on the internet, um, but told in a very kind of personal way. And there's something about rickrolling. And again, there's very kind of personal hearing yourself in same gender, published the first time, tracking it with data, stuff like that. Um, is there a kind of like a personal thread that runs through pudding work that that you know that this is a pudding piece when people do it, or is it is it more eclectic than that?
2: Um, I mean, I think most of the projects that we work on are a function of individual interests of the team. There are a lot of projects that we fund essentially underwrite that other people contribute. Most of the work is end of the day like an individual interest, so I think the topics reflect the composition of the team and kind of where their heads are at. Uh, So I I would say like the personal the 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 idea that it feels personal is is a function of just people working on projects that personally interest them, Um, and I think the voice of a lot of the projects come off with that individual passion for the for the topic itself. so I do think, relative to a more traditional newsroom, you do have a bit more of a, a bleed of the author's, you know, individual background or their 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 narrative or their voice, or it's told in first person than you would get in other um, publications. And yeah, so I I'm glad you kind of picked up on that, Simon.
3: I think one thing we can I can add just based on now facilitating um, this kind of work and, and um, as like a project manager and stuff is something that I sometimes see at the pudding is that creative burnout does happen. Um, sometimes you just kind of run out of ideas when you're really trying to um, always lean into that personal interest. So we do sometimes mix it up even with internal team members where someone will just be like, assign me a story, assign me some tasks in a story, let me work on it. So I think that's the only time that um, – the author isn't just like, to your point, mean, like personally interested in doing it. And we see that kind of helps relieve um, their creative energy a little bit. And then they come back with their own project idea. It's also the same concept as with polygraphs. Sometimes we'll pull a pudding maker and put them on a polygraph project that has very clear um, outlines and scope. Um, and that kind of like refills their creative energy. And then they can go back and work on those super personal pieces and stuff at the pudding
0: one of the, one of the things I've also felt that makes you unusual as a collective is that often you know you you enter and win data journalist awards so yeah i've I've been on juries where we've talked about putting work and uh, yeah and you're competing then with like New York Times or the post or whatever and and we've seen yeah you know, like your work appear in those kind of outlets as well is that is that something that's like an intent in a way of 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 how how it works or is it something thats just like just happened as a side effect of the kind of climate we're in
2: oh like uh then well like like submitting to awards that are more of those of like the ilk of a larger yeah and, kind of and winning them i mean yeah we should talk about you
0: i oh. mean emmy nominated uh Washington oh, yeah, piece yeah, yeah. It too, but...
2: yeah it's definitely not intentional i think we've submitted a few times and that's Uh, mostly a function of jan on our team like eager to submit she i think realizes that there is an outcome of um it's i mean it's why newsrooms submit for awards in the first place uh so uh the project that you're mentioning um we didn't submit the washington posted and we're very grateful that they did so but there's there's some internal rationale for why they submit um and whether that's recognition or retention of their staff, um, I'm not sure. Um, but you, it is you, a
0: bit... Do you see yeah. it as data journalism?
2: Like when you're producing the work, do you think of it in the same way? Um, sometimes. I think it depends. I think that project specifically, which was on the George Floyd protests... In, yeah, let's, talk, let's um, talk a bit more about that one. I mean, it was interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's tough because like in some ways... I think if it's on a serious topic, it's automatically journalism um, in my mind, but I don't even know if that's fair because then it means if it's on a soft topic, it's maybe not journalism, which is like a weird dichotomy. Um, But I don't know. I think it's, it's a really hard thing to say because I know a lot of people that do similar work would say they're in media or they're in content. And I think you could argue it's journalism, but then there's some people that are, i've definitely seen a a snarky tweet from somebody on the internet who i will not mention that said like this is not journalism and you know then you're getting into the topic of like what is journalism like do you need a journalism degree i've been in inter i've been in interviews with like officers where i ask them and they're like are you a journalist and i'm like well yeah and they're like well did you go to j school and i was like i would say like most journalists definitely didn't go to journalism school so there's this this weird thing of around the semantics of journalism that you can easily just start Falling down the rabbit hole of, that, that's that's really interesting. I know that Alberta is itching to go, but I, do I have I have very
1: strong feelings. <laughs> really really quickly, could it. you
0: just talk talk <laughs> through the Washington Post project? Because I think for people who haven't seen it, it's a fantastic piece. It was nominated for an Emmy this year, which is brilliant. So t- tell us a little bit about that piece and why you chose the approach you did, and then Alberta, you should go
2: yeah i mean i don't know such an interesting origin story because i know that um the genesis of that project did start with you simon um and kind of just a prompt of you working with an editor over at the washington post of like hey like what if we did something with um live streams like that was kind of it (laughs) and and then from there sometimes that's the only prompt you need um to kind of have the an idea germinate is like well what if we fenced in the idea around this 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 prompt of live streams and then from there it's like okay like well what's interesting about live streams so we have youtube live streams we have facebook live streams and then uh from there it was like well what if we focused on the fact that there are these really long live streams it's not the fact that there is live footage but that someone in minneapolis or really anywhere at that point because we were just thinking about protests in general that summer of 2020 um are are just posting unedited live streams not even posting but it's just live streamed and i don't know if we had really that during the previous serious wave of of protests in 2016 i think um so this felt like a unique moment where someone was live streaming on youtube or instagram or facebook for like 10 hours straight and and the audiences were huge and these were just people and ironically they would be like people would go up to them and be like, what are you doing? And they're like, well, I'm filming and there's like a million people watching. And they would be like, why well, are you a journalist? And they're like, and then there would be this weird existential thing of like, sometimes they'd say yes and sometimes they'd say no. And I like watched all these live streams. So it was really interesting to see that internally develop. But um, so we had the idea of like, well, what if we focused on these like long live streams from these quasi journalists? And uh, and then it was like, well, there's something really interesting here because this is unedited footage. Sure, there are a lot of clips that got circulated, definitely from such these live live streams as well. But it really gave an insight into what it was like to be on the ground and the narrative that was forming around these clips that were going viral and where how that narrative was getting created. And um, end of the day, like you could just watch these live streams and form your own opinion around what was going on because there wasn't any voiceover. It was just a person with a camera. Sometimes they would be doing journalistic esque interviews. Um, sometimes they weren't, they were just kind of sitting there observing and sometimes they were doing their own individual narrative, um, voiceover on like what they were seeing, what they were hearing. And again, millions of people watching this as well So you're getting all their comments. Um, so from there we were like, well, what can we do with this? Um, and we, we somehow landed on with the reporters at the Washington post and Simon, Simon as well. Um, the idea of kind of piecing these together as kind of a multi-perspective timeline. So we have all these live streamers, they're all over Minneapolis, some of them are downtown, some of them are at the memorial site. Um, what if we all put them on a common timeline, and then you could, as a reader, kind of jump into someone's live stream, you know, for for whatever purpose, um, and then jump to someone else's and they would be in different places at the exact same time. And for a lot of people over that summer, they knew the highlights by highlights. I mean, like where there was violence with officers, um, where the major protests and marches were taking place, um, kind of the scene at the memorial site, which obviously had a very different tone. So you, you could kind of go there and take it in without all the media narrative, without it ending prematurely or just being edited around violence, which just is how unfortunately things went down is violence was what a lot of the clips were oriented around. So you could see the peaceful side of what was happening in Minneapolis as well. Um, And really also just the overall tone of the protests that might get lost when the violence is what primarily circulates. So a lot of the people were doing interviews with protesters and you just got to get like a raw narrative that I don't know if was as shareable as some of like the violence was that summer. So. Anyway, so that all came together in a really long-form project, and um, I i mean, I, I watched so much footage, I probably became desensitized to it, um, but it was a really interesting piece to put together, and I think it was technically also very um, ambitious. I don't know if we, like, nailed the, the like, presentation as well as we could have. We were kind of on a timeline where we wanted to get it done before um, the winner, uh, but... I have never seen anything like that, and I do think some other newsrooms have tried to do something similar with the um, the attacks that happened in January around um, uh, the um, uh, the Capitol building. So, kind of piecing together live streams as well. So that so it's just interesting to see how that project might have been the fuel for for new ways to approach live streams as as that's become like a common piece of media and protests.
1: I'd like to go back to what Matt was saying before, because Simon knows these very, very well, but I have very strong feelings about that whole discourse about, you know, you need to have a degree in journalism to be a journalist. And it might be funny for me to say that because I am a journalism professor with a degree in journalism who teaches in a school of communication in a journalism program. But whenever I hear someone saying something like that, it's like my reaction is always that's your BS. Of course you're a journalist, of course you do journalism, because journalism is not something, or or, a journalist is not something that you are. It's something that you do, right? Journalism is a practice. So if you practice journalism, you are a journalist. You're acting like a journalist. And this is something that I have a discussion about with my students every semester, because I teach students who come from data science, from bioinformatics, from statistics, I tell all of them, if you create a blog in which you describe the research that you conduct in a language that normal people like myself can understand and you do it, always paying attention to fact checking, to being truthful, to being clear and with the goal of informing those people about that research, you are doing journalism. That is what journalism is about. It's an activity of translation of information, right? So, of course, put it does journalism. I remember that discussion many, you know, years. I, I think that it was a year or two years ago. I think that I intervened in that discussion. Um, uh, Simon, do you want to say something about it, or Caitlin, anything about that? Um, I think I see you I think are not. I can understand. i listeners are not are not
0: seeing us, but I, see I you do. Know. I mean, I do feel like yeah, that's true. <laughs> and you know, we live in a, we live in a weird time at the moment with all the misinformation and everything that's out there. But I do think. There is something about data which has given this avenue to people which wasn't there before you know like video has done this you know anybody can pick up a phone and and become a video journalist but something about data because you're relying on things that are based in kind of reality somewhere Mm -hmm. it kind of it, it kind of like allows people just to to become like a data journalist because you're relying on facts that people can then contest but at least you're contesting something that's not opinion it's like it's, you know, these is based on something that's, that's real. So, yeah, no, I feel that. I, I feel like the work you do is absolutely generous. And, and you know, these, I hate these definitional debates because I think they're, they're, they're normally designed to put people down. But I, and I think that actually, you know, the work is definitely there, which is why you've won these awards, right? This is not stuff that just uh, that, that people don't recognize out there in the world.
3: Yeah, The Pudding also won a Peabody about three years ago as well. Um, I think that's an important one, um, but I just, I think it's interesting also, Alberto, your point about it being a practice, because again, I studied computer science, but I do a talk about my background into a, in a lot of college classes at like Parsons and Emerson and things like that, um, because it's a little odd and there was a lot of moving pieces, um, but one of the biggest things I always say is that while I was in college, all I did, all of my professional experiences, I spent so much time doing internships and they were all in journalism, even though I was studying computer science and even though I was doing science. Um, So even as a person who was trying to learn the practice, it was so much more valuable. Um, to be actually in the newsroom in the field than sitting in a class. I did an exchange program where I took like two journalism classes my entire time in college. But I was working for a punk magazine where we'd break these big stories. I was doing like investigative journalism with my boss and calling jails and getting public records and learning through that. So just looking at my own experiences, I think it really affects a lot of the things that you were saying. Um, I think one other note that i thought was really interesting that matt mentioned was the idea between like the soft and hard because i think that's what the pudding does a lot topic wise but even in our like softer stories i think the primary example we always use is the women's pockets article which analyzed the differences in sizes between women's and men's pockets where we literally went into h&ms and malls and measured pockets and dressing rooms and created a database i was going to
0: mention pockets that must be (laughs) is that like the most successful piece you've ever done
3: no, it was the Spotify piece in December, which we can definitely chat about because I don't think we've ever experienced a viral moment. I don't think Matt Daniels has ever experienced a viral moment like the Spotify piece last December. No. Um, it was massive. But that one was huge. And I think that one's particularly big among the data journalism and visual journalism community. It also won a lot of rewards. But that is kind of a fun topic on the outside. But it had a lot of interesting commentary on the purse industry and like why quote unquote, women's pockets are smaller and things like that. So I always compare it to like kind of late night comedians who will do sketches about really serious topics, like we kind of pull them in with a lighter intro, but then we're actually kind of like delivering um, a pretty serious idea or some kind of concept to them as well. Um, So yeah.
1: I'm also against the idea of soft topics and hard topics. I think that that's also full complete BS. I mean, the pocket size project, that's fantastic. That's a fantastic project that speaks so closely to people, about realities that expe- people experience every single day and they don't have an answer to. And that piece sort of like corroborates things people that, that, something that people already know, right? So I think that that's a fantastic piece um not only that one but the spotify one the hip-hop lyrics one that also became you know well it, it was one of the first ones that he published uh years ago um anyway so i have a very quick very quick question about um about these, and then uh we can perhaps go back to polygraph about, about the pudding so um, If you both had to choose just one piece among the ones that you have produced, which one would it be and why? I mean, the ones that you feel maybe not the most proud of, but the ones that you had, uh, the piece that you had more fun with producing maybe.
2: I don't know. I feel like I have fun on all the projects. Otherwise I wouldn't want to work on them. I don't even know. I mean, the we ages ago we did a project on. Um, there's a great story behind this one. Basically, Russell had the idea of like analyzing stand-up comedy, um, and had had basically some sort of idea around like how how stand-up um, comedians, specifically with their specials, structure their their specials. And he had really gotten to like Mike Birbiglia. I feel like I'm butchering that last name and a few other people um and he actually had caitlin i think watch all these routines some of them definitely not safe for work and probably violated our code of conduct but um it was was her um as well as a few other people i think we had some interns at the time um watch these stand-up routines and kind of like mark in a google sheet like what they were talking about um and he had done some and then so basically all the data was collected and then I think he also had marked, had Gitlin the other people marked like when there was laughter and how how long it was and everything. Um, so he had, he had finished the data collection, did some kind of charts around it, but they weren't that interesting. And I think he just kind of like put a pause on it, and it kind of started collecting dust. But then, like I thought it was really interesting, and I felt like we could squeeze some juice out of the data and get a story out of it. So um, we yeah, I went to Russell and was like, "I think this is really fun data. I think I can come up with a story around this. And I had a lot of fun like pouring through the data and figuring out like what was interesting. Like, where were the insights? Um eventually, like trying to construct this story around Ali Wong's specific routine and um and like the the longest laugh in that routine, what what I started coining as the laughter climax. And like, basically writing, what was just like my take on like why I thought this was so funny and like what the data sh- showed to like show why this was funny so it was just like mix of like Matt's narrative and like the data and I thought it was really really fun and, and like just interesting to kind of like rationalize why this was funny but there's obviously no like real reason why it was funny which just like my rationalization of it um but that was actually such a fun project and then the fun fact about that project is like the 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 peabody thing that Hitler mentioned um that was the year that i think ali wong or like stand-up had some sort of like 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 peabody or something and we were at like some judges table and we were like yeah we saw that project and like a lot of the judges didn't understand why stand-up comedy should get like a peabody like it's like kind of was like this inferior piece of like media and entertainment and like when they saw that they were like oh this is like an art form We get it now and like somebody won some sort of like award maybe because of that maybe not i don't know but like i don't know had some sort of influence on the judges i guess so i thought that was really neat and is, is like a vote for like soft journalism i guess um but anyway so that was like probably my most fun project
3: I have, well, that was me, by the way. I remember sitting on the subway and watched the Mike get, biscuit. That one was my favorite over and over, just like on my phone on the subway. And I would be taking notes. Um, my first task ever at the pudding. Um, But I'll briefly touch on two. Um, one is an article that Russell and I also did work on um, that when I was still kind of like a maker, it was about um, using Wikipedia page views to track like breakout celebrities. And if you look at this article, it's so strange. It's like, has these like individual little charts where like there's bubbles of faces that are different celebrities. And the whole screen itself is a supposed to be like a big space that represents like a chart. It's the only time I think that we've ever done like a podcast article. So Russell and I are like comment like adding commentary throughout. It was just like very experimental. Um, and I was still pretty like new full time at the team. Um, and I think like, Russ and I just had so much fun working on it like I, I think it really speaks to and similar to what Matt was saying that the team itself does feel like a collective but like how much laughing we did like it was actually it was just like so much fun at work like trying to record like the podcast I'm tone deaf, so we were trying to like clap and we couldn't I couldn't clap like little stories like that where it's just like throughout the day we're like actually having fun working on these articles so when I think about the experience of that, um, it always just makes me laugh still. So. But the other one I think mentioning is one I did when I was still an intern. It was about um, access to abortion clinics. And we built a data set from scratch of every abortion clinic in the country. Of course, we did not share this, we just put it into the article and maps and things like that. But um, it was it was not, it did not exist because we also included different services each clinic offered. And it entailed me sitting and calling a ton of clinics and, and learning about their services and things like that. So I thought that one was also important to know because I think it also connects to this whole conversation we were just having about hard journalism and journalism and things like that and building that data set from scratch. Um, and yeah, that was like, that. W- I, I would personally say that was definitely um, an important journalistic experience for me in the past. So yeah, those are the two I always think about.
0: There is a lot to be said for having fun while you're working when i was at the guardian we did um a map about the chocolate um kind of export and import trade and it was mike robinson's idea to make the map out of chocolate so we melted all this chocolate down and kind of put it onto a map and we got to eat it afterwards and it's that whole day i remember being a lot of fun but um so i you know you often hear kind of art house directors talking about doing one for the studio and one for themselves and i feel like um with With polygraph and the pudding you kind of get that so you get to do one for one for the industry and one for yourself but um talk a little bit about like what makes polygraph different to like every other agency out there and is it the fact that you have the pudding that gives you that kind of that kind of edge there do you think
3: yeah this is going back to that first question is something i kind of discussed with with clients a ton there there are a few things i think that make polygraph um super special um, we've been around for a long time and we're still a team of eight so it's a very very small team still working on um the work we haven't expanded drastically um and then also also going back to a point i made earlier the makers and the creators themselves they work on both sides so they really it's we try to kind of mitigate that creative burnout between like You're doing stuff at the pudding, you're doing stuff at polygraphs. It gives a a lot of variety in how the makers are approaching the work. So I think that in general improves the pieces that we make at Polygraph. Um, but two important points other than what I just talked about, that I always mention. One is that Polygraph, we are data journalists, we market ourselves as storytellers. Yes, we do the front end code. We'll bring something we've we've made massive 40 foot installations of data visualizations and offices to, you know. Pieces that look very similar to the pudding. We've done all of it. So we have developers, we have the coders, but I always tell people we're storytellers at the end of the day, and we're gonna spend most of our time figuring out what the best story is to tell. Um, The other thing is that we're an incredibly casual agency. Because we're small, I I am the director. I do all the project management. I do the business development. Obviously, Matt supports me in all of this, and he's been my mentor from day one and helping me move into this role because I don't have a background in business. I don't have a background in strategy. So I get a ton of support among the team, but all of those roles are kind of, you know, built into my role. And because of that, we're very casual. Yeah, we can present a massive deck to you that's like beautifully designed. And in fact, about a year ago, I went to Matt and I was like, "We got to build some fancy decks. And he's like, yeah, you can, but it's kind of always been against our ethos. We've always been like, let's have a conversation with clients. Let's talk through progress and things like that. So it's almost like we become kind of embedded onto your team. Um, So yeah, I think those are the major things that kind of separates Polygraph from a larger agency.
1: Well, I'm going to switch back to the pudding because one of the things that I, I'm more interested in is in sort of like spreading, spreading data journalism and spreading data visualization. And I think that an initiative like the pudding really helps that. So, do you think that the pudding model is replicable? Can it be repeated? Can can it be adopted in in other countries? Are there are there people doing that that you know, or other initiatives similar to that publication? What do you think about that?
2: do you mean the the kind of the the beat that the pudding has or the business the model? sort of
1: like the model of an
2: independently owned publication that does oh, independent yeah, yeah, data yeah. journalism and I mean I think the uh the model has always been the same and as I mentioned before I don't think the model is very um anomalous like every museum has a studio um so and that's not unique um in terms of smaller publications also wielding the studio model uh i've seen it in a few places uh gimlet's probably the closest one that came to mind and they were acquired by spotify a few years ago but they were running gimlet studio um which was producing podcasts for microsoft and whole foods and they were all journalists working on those podcasts um i think they uh they did have they were big enough to have people just doing the the studio podcasts uh but but they were i mean at the end of the day they were a small newsroom they're a small journalistic entity doing podcasts um so i think there is a lot of data <laughs> to suggest that this is tenable in terms of running a company um especially an independent one that's not like the new york times um so yeah i think i think it, i think it, I, I think it can work there's there's so many successful examples of it working as a business model that is beyond just uh, a philanthropic funder, which is where a lot of journalism is heading, unfortunately, or fortunately, um, or having, you know, the the monthly NPR-esque, like, uh, like, calls for donations, which is another model which, you know, sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. So I do think that model can work to run more of, like, a traditionally, like, funded, not not funded via nonprofit mechanisms, type of thing.
0: So I often feel, and this is site switch sorry, I feel that um, both newsrooms and organisations don't really know how to work with designers around data. That you either they either throw everything at you, like all the data, and just leave you to it, or so you get a zero communication, or you or they over communicate so much and try and tell you what to do. And I feel you know, like I certainly noticed that when we've worked with you, the pieces that I love the most are the ones where you've kind of taken the lead almost and been like that, so that they felt like they've they've had some you know some some love from you in that way. But what are the things that you would tell people when they're they're contemplating working with designers, whether it's in newsroom or in any kind of organization? And what what are the the hints, the tips, and tricks that um, that people should know out there in the world?
2: Um, I mean, Caitlin, definitely would love your opinion. I'll just go first. Um, I mean, I think it it comes down to the story you're telling, like sometimes the story is so complicated and requires so much context. You have to hold the reader's hand through the story. Um, so you can't just like show them a chart. You have to kind of like walk them through the chart or you can't just say like, here's a bunch of data. It's like, well, let me give you enough context so you can even like look at this chart and you know what the hell I'm talking about. Uh, So a lot of that is predicated on the story um how niche the story is uh like what are we, what are we working on right now we're working on a project about plain language um which is this movement to like turn writing into something that is as accessible as possible to as many as people as possible but it's not a very well-known idea um so it just requires a lot of context and you can't just like start off a project like that with a bunch of charts and data um you have to like explain what even we're talking about so that's part one of it and then part two is like the story itself like how much what insight do you want to communicate to the reader how are are you willing to risk them getting through this article or project or whatever and not knowing the insight that you wish that they knew uh so if this is like a choose your own adventure like here's a map like hopefully you see what we want you to see um like how are you willing to risk them not seeing it and sometimes there's so many things to look at, and there's not really like a sledgehammer point that you have to make. Uh, that something broad is um, is is fine, um, but sometimes like they have to make it through that visual and know what you're communicating. So in that case, like holding their hand through it is is preferable. So that that'd be my advice to all the designers: to, like know what story they're telling.
3: I can speak from more of just like kind of a logistical sense and how I think about this at Polygraph, because I am kind of facilitating teams of designers with clients and things now. There are a few things. One is smaller teams. Um, I think that's pretty straightforward. But having like a room with like 20 people reviewing kind of like what Matt was just saying, um, there's probably not going to be much productive discussion. Um, So I think smaller teams with designers, smaller teams with clients um, collaborating, ideally like two-on-two or one-on-one or something like that is usually ideal um i think a level of trust given to the designers um because they're experts in what they do um i know there'll be like a lot of clients and things who want kind of like simon said either they'll just give us all the data and tell us to go or they'll be very specific about what they want but i think at the end of the day trust in that the designer knows the best approach um um, and that's like a lot of polygraphs ethos when we work with different clients on projects and things like we will tell you when we think something's not a good idea. If you need it to be done this way, we will eventually do it that way. But we're definitely going to give you our opinion and tell you what we think is best because we are the experts in this very niche thing of data storytelling. Um, and I think another thing, just being like a PM facilitator, is I talk to every one of my team members, whether they're full time, whether I'm working with a contractor on something, just to understand how they like to work. Some designers work very differently. Um, some developers work very differently. Some like a very hands on um, PMs. Some like people to be more hands off and just let them run with it, more direct contact to the client. So these are just some things I think about from like how do you actually project manage and facilitate a design data storytelling project that I take into account every day.
1: The pudding is open to contributions uh, from um, sort of like external professionals and designers and so people can essentially work not for you, but with you and get their stuff published. Right? Can you talk a little bit about what what the process looks like, how people can submit work and then work with you? What, What does that look like?
3: Yeah, this is actually something that's been you know important from us from day one, but we've been particularly focused on the past year or two. And it's not only at The Pudding, it's at Polygraph as well. Um, so we do accept pitches 24-7. You don't even have to be um, experienced in any of these things or like a professional in the field. Anyone can pitch us an idea. It's not like that they have to be able to produce the article from start to finish. Um, maybe they're really good at data. Maybe they just have an idea and they want to write all the copy. Maybe they're developers or designers, whatever. Um, we always then assign a maker or two to work. We call them freelancers in our case, um, to work on the project and kind of fill in the holes and also kind of, you know, storyboard it and workshop it with that kind of putting point of view from a full-time maker. Um, so yeah, it's been something we've been leaning again. We've always had an open call for pitches, Matt it's pitches at putting.cool. I'm pretty sure. Um, that's the email. We have guidelines on our website that you can go and it's really helpful if you follow those guidelines. It's just simple things like, you know, what's the idea and stuff like that. But yeah, um, and then we review them and we always give every pitch that we get, you know, a we review them and we give you like a really detailed response and hopefully that response is helpful. If we end up don't taking the project, we actually want to give you helpful information. So um, building on a freelancer network and a community is really important. And it's also been something we've been doing at polygraph as well. We have like a very close group of about five to 10 contractors. We call them contractors at polygraph that maybe they're experts in something like data art um, or they're an illustrator something we don't have in the team um, or they're independent um, freelancers that they freelance for full time for a living. Um, and we work with them often on multiple, multiple projects throughout the year. So, um, that helps expand, yeah, the community of kind of like what's working on this. Um, but yes, yeah, send us pitches all the time. <laughs> constantly.
0: There you go, people send the pitches, um, Matt and Caitlin. Thank you so much.
3: Thanks.
2: This was great. I had a lot of fun.
3: Me too. <laughs>